One, two, three. There we go. That was on four, but <laughs> I know what Peter means by on two. One, <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Cine Skinny. The boys are back in town, by which I mean Anahit's gone on holiday and we're in a meeting room. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's Peter, Jamie and Lewis once again back to talk about the films. I've got a hands-free lapel microphone. To be fair, ours are also hands-free. They are hands-free. We're not like doing stand-up in here. Yeah. Up against the brick wall. We could put a brick wall up on the telly. What I want is like a, a little Britney make. I think that would make oh, me that would improve my performance. I'd sing my reviews. A musical episode of The Zenny Skinny. We can pace across the room as we argue. I mean, I'd be up for it. But not today. There's simply not time. Return to Seoul, we have to talk about that. Jamie's been to Hoik, so we'll talk about that. The new issue of the magazine is all about pop-related things, so we'll talk a bit about that. And there's also something else. Oh, there's a giant ant at the end, so that's fun. But first, we'll start with what people have been watching. This feels quite chaotic. Jamie, take us to Hoik. <laughs> As they used to say, as the gospel preachers used to say back in the day, take well, me to Hoyt. Well, it all starts in the X95 Borders bus. <laughs> Imagine rolling hills. Um, no, yeah, I'm back from Hoyt, uh, a festival uh, that I love. So it's, this is the Alchemy Film Festival in Hoyt, um, which is a festival we've been big champions of for a few years. If you don't know about Alchemy, uh, it's, well, it's a year-round organisation, uh, Alchemy Film and Arts, are responsible for a lot of film activity and a lot of education, a lot of kind of community stuff. But they also do this annual festival. I'll, I'll, I'll pause because Peter's doing something. I was underneath the table plugging my laptop in. Jamie, tell me more about Hoik and the excellent with the excellent work that Alchemy do year round. They do great year round work, but it all comes together um, in this four day event um, over the bank holiday weekend. Yeah, it's it's uh, they they bring together these amazing. Um, filmmakers, uh, it's, they specialise in experimental film and artists moving image. The, the festival's made up of a series of screenings, um, but there's also um, a series of, kind of installations that are put together in sort of spaces throughout Hoik. And there's also um, a few kind of performance elements. So we'll have so there's musicians. Uh, there was a Kaylee this year for the first time, which is great fun. It does feel really ingrained within Hoik, you know. Um, like I say, the programme's made up of these kind of great international well-known filmmakers but um, a big chunk of the programme is also work made by local filmmakers who in some way have worked with Alchemy to make the film so there's people who do residencies, um, there's uh, sort of school outreach programmes, um, there's other outreach programmes throughout Scotland which also get involved and bring work to Hoik. So yeah it's a, it, I just really love how they take, they can they put like this, this kind of international famous work that will screen at Venice or Berlin, um, or all these kind of great festivals alongside, um, you know, just work that's made up the roads, um, by sort of a bunch of school kids and sort of it's been put together. Um, so so they put everything shoulder to shoulder. They don't really separate it out in any way, which is really interesting. And quite often this community work really stands up. I think, um, and some of the best stuff I saw did involve um, sort of outreach work, working with young people. So yeah, it's a really kind of invigorating, fun weekend. Uh, like I say, there was a lot of partying and uh, alcohol and dancing as well. So it's really good. And uh, Hoik, is a, Hoik is a strange little town, but it's fun. And it's especially fun um, over this weekend. So uh, I would you, recommend going whenever you get a chance. You interviewed Julia Parks, right, yeah. uh, a month in the last month's issue. And 
I can't remember that interview off the top of my head, but didn't she wind up loving the community so much that she just decided to stay there? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, having been brought there by the by the festival. Yeah, don't, don't believe me. Listen to Julia Park. She did a residency um, at um, Hoik. It's the... It's because it's called. Uh, I need to get the name right. So it's called. Um, it's, it's a it's a it's a pun on a, a famous play. So it's uh, the Cheviot, the flag, and the rich rich soil, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the Cheviot, the stag, and the rich rich oil, which is a, a famous play um, from the seventies. But um, yeah, so this is a, a, a residency. They've done a few of them um, now, um, where they invite a filmmaker to spend six months in Hoyk. Um, and their only remit is basically to make a film um, with the community in some way or, or uh, that engages with the community in some way. So Julia um, actually made four films. Um, all are excellent. Um, but yeah, she seemed to have such a great time in Hoyk that she's just moved there. Um, I think one of the benefits is, well, first of all, Alchemy is a big reason why I think you're seeing a lot of filmmakers living there because... Um, like I say, they, they give people the space and the equipment and the opportunity to make films. But also, it's also really cheap. It's really affordable. Like I was speaking to someone who just bought a house there for £24,000. So, you know, if, like the thing is about experimental filmmakers is, you know, they don't make a ton of money. They're usually relying on either, you know, doing it part time with other jobs or getting sort of little grants and stuff. Um, so, yeah, maybe working in a place like Hoik where you have... Um, a festival that's really invested in the work you do and it's kind of a very livable place um, is, is like a kind of reason why it's flourishing so well so yeah uh, I'd love to see other festivals kind of do this kind of not only put on work from all over the world and bring great films um, to Scotland but also be invested in working with communities and making films I think it's a, it's a really kind of exciting way to, to think of a festival you know I did see on Instagram over the weekend that there was a 3,000 square foot warehouse in Hoyk going for 90 grand. So if anyone wants to come and join our film artists commune. Yeah, let's Jamie is the outrider. The, uh, the, the city skinny says, move to Hoyk. Exactly. Yeah. This is like combination film podcast, arts magazine, and escape to the chateau yeah. style. Real uh, estate listings. Real estate listings and home development project. Let's do it. Let's, let's, that's, that could be a studio. We could have like tons going on in there. Yeah, we could have soundproofing. Exactly. Imagine that. Right, so that was Alchemy. Five stars for Hoik. Lewis has not been to Hoik. I've not been to Hoik. I've been sat at home watching TV. And I've been like a little down and out about TV so far this year, but I did find two series on Disney Plus that I'm quite pleased with. One of them's all right. One of them's really, really quite good. The one that's all right is uh, History of the World Part 2, which is a series that acts as a sequel to the Mel Brooks film from 1981, History of the World Part 1 which is just like a sort of sketch show. I've not seen the actual original film, but the the series is this sort of like sketch show that puts historical set dressing on just some like pretty goofy comedy. So there's like Jack Rasp, which is where they recreate all the botched assassination attempts of Rasputin as if they're jackass stunts. And they've they've got Johnny Knoxville playing Rasputin. And, you know, Taika Waititi shows up as Sigmund Freud, but... He's just a massive cokehead and stuff like that. So there's like recurring plot lines with Nick Kroll and Wanda Sykes. So lots of like hot TV comedians. And I've not seen the original film. I, I know it's like by no means Mel Brooks' most celebrated film, but it's made me curious about it. So I will probably go out and see it. But the uh, other film, the, the other series that I, I really, really enjoyed was Extraordinary, which is a sitcom about 
young adults in central London, you know, as you know. But except it's an alternate world where everybody has superpowers. And it's very much in the vein of, like, Misfits or the Umbrella Academy, where the humor comes from the fact that the superpowers are more of an inconvenience than a blessing. So... Siobhan McSweeney, who plays Sister Michael in Dairy Girls, shows up as our main character's mum, who can control technology. Except because she's a mum, she doesn't know anything about technology, and it's kind of a disaster. She doesn't even know how to work her own phone. Luke Rollison has kind of a breakout role. He was at the Edinburgh Fringe last year with Bowerbird, the sort of weird furniture thing. And it was like, my favourite thing that I saw, he's a, he's a physical comedian who trained at clown school, and uh, he obviously just like does a great job in this uh, show, but also is kind of like the emotional heart of it, which I think a sitcom always needs. So yeah, it's just been like a long time since I've seen a sitcom that made me laugh and I actually cared about the characters. I think the last time must have been The Good Place. And even then, I've loved, I I fell in love with this quicker than I fell in love with The Good Place. So um, do check it out. I think it's going to be like popular. That does sound good. I've never heard of it. It's like the tiles there, and I think it's just not that like eye-catching a tile on Disney Plus, but it sort of has just come out of nowhere. It feels like a very sort of new trendy sitcom. So, yeah. I mean, Luke Rollison has been doing stuff for the last for like a few years now. I remember he once got one of my friends up on stage. I think it was at Bowerbirds. The story was that he got the friend up on stage to be a lamp. Mm-hmm put the lampshade on his head and then just basically forgot about him. Yeah. And he was just standing on stage facing out the way for a good 10 to 12 minutes. Yeah, when I went, it was um, getting someone to be a coat that he hung up on a hook uh, and just stand there. Or a door. So it's like, really, like, you know, his role in the show is like a, an actual dramatic role. Like it, it, you, It's very different from his sort of solo work, but um, he's really good in it. So, so is it... So it's funded by Disney, but it's also in the UK. I can't actually think of it. It is. It's a UK production, and it's got, like, you know, all sort of UK actors who have popped up in, like, sex education and stuff like that. I'll, um, Interesting. But, yeah, I don't... I mean, it's it's on Disney. I think that, like, it's their, it's through their... Is it called Stars or something oh, like that? Star, yeah, yeah, Star Plus or whatever. So I, I don't exactly know the production company and the details there. Um, but, yeah, it's all British people that are in it. It's... It feels a very British kind of humour. Like I say, it reminded me a lot of Misfits, which was another sort of... It was slightly more bleak, but comedic take on young people with superpowers. But definitely worth checking out. Good stuff. Um, I don't have much to discuss, simply that I watched Mulan, possibly for the first time. I can't really remember watching it as a kid. We don't have much time to talk about it, because as they say in Mulan, let's get down to business. No reaction whatsoever. Pearls before swine sometimes with you people. I also watched Mulan over the weekend, by the way, by complete coincidence. We randomly picked a film to put on and it was Mulan, which is a good film. Slaps pretty hard. Yeah. It does have a good song. Colors of the Wind is a banger. That's Pocahontas. Oh, wait, okay. I mixed up. Right, we'll we'll, we'll play the little interstitial drum bit there and then that'll cut. We'll go into the review for this week, which is Return to Seoul. Freddy, uh, played by Jimin Park, is a young woman born in Korea but adopted by French parents. She comes back to Korea in the Return to Seoul of the title. Lewis is nodding. Jamie is stone-faced. To meet her parents and find out a bit more about herself. It's the new film from David Cho, and it's kind of centred around this central performance from Jimin Park. I feel like my usual dispassionate description of things in a very matter-of-fact way doesn't quite do it justice. Um, I think a lot of this film is very internal and it's about the kind of characters struggle to kind of know what they want and how to get it. Would you agree with that, Jamie? Or would you think something different? I'd say that's pretty accurate. 
Um, I, I don't know. I, I was I was kind of stunned by this film actually a little bit. Um, I guess there's a lot of films about um, adoption, and they usually go two ways. Like so, the first kind of most common mode is you know the adoptee kind of realizes that blood isn't thicker than water, and the people who brought them up um, are their real parents, and that's the big revelation. Or it, it it turns out they have a great kind of cathartic reunion with their parents but this is like a lot messier and a lot realer so so what happens is they have this character traveling to korea and like it's almost like she's done it on a whim she hasn't done any research she doesn't speak the language she doesn't really seem to know herself what she wants out of it so she she's this kind of big bag of contradictions because she is kind of very self-assured and confident um, and we see that in sort of scenes where she's like can make friends with everyone you know she's like instantly makes friends she like brings a whole room of people together for a drinking party so she's got this kind of like force of nature kind of assurance to her but then when it comes to actually knowing what she wants in life she seems to not have a clue um so even when she does begin this process of um reconnecting with her parents it's never she it's never clear if she wants it because as soon as she meets her father there's a kind of sense of disappointment you know he's an alcoholic but he's also very maudlin and he kind of instantly wants her back in her, his life. Um, it, but she's kind of repelled by that idea. Um, and I just thought like, you don't really see films like this uh, very often because it's, it's, a, it's a feeling that I think everybody's had before where you want to do something, you know you, your life isn't right, but you don't actually know how to move forward. And that's this character. And we see her, um, and the film sort of moves around. I mean, when I say the, the emotions are messy, the film's actually kind of messy because it moves around, it will jump around uh, like years and we see different versions of this character, um, how she like how she changes into a year. So she, so she goes from this woman who's supposedly just for like a week holiday, but then we, we, we flash forward and she, it seems like she's been there forever. She's kind of starting to learn the language, she's a, a Korean boyfriend. Um, and then something happens and that all breaks down and she tries again. And it's about this woman who's constantly kind of trying to just change her life and trying to, to work out what she wants and that's that's kind of a quite hard thing to do on screen but I think it does a really good job and it sort of rings really true to real life because I think that's something that like I say everybody does in, in one way or another because nobody really knows what's going on with their life and where they're going to be in five years and it's, it's it's kind of nice to see that on screen you know yeah yeah I mean um, I really enjoyed it I think that it was interesting to me because it's sort of about people speaking different languages and like the, in a very literal example there's a point where um our french speaking protagonist wants to tell someone to stop contacting her but her translator is sort of when saying it in korean is sort of softening the blow and not being as definitive as she is um unbeknownst to her but beknownst to us because of the handy dandy english closed captioning um but they're doing this interesting thing of showing translation as this like highly subjective cultural act and you know, language doesn't even need to necessarily describe words. Because like you point out, there's scenes where she's being really disruptive. She's like this big force of nature who's bringing all these people together. She's very loud and sort of like extroverted. At one point, she just starts randomly shouting at a bus driver. She's like the loud voice in the room when no one else is. But then inversely, uh, she when, when her sort of biological family overwhelm her with these huge emotional displays... Um, it, it's described as the way that Korean men are. She's just completely silent. And it's like quite powerful. It's quite impactful how hesitant she seems to open up to them. Um, and she sort of lacks this cultural expectation uh, to like reciprocate. Um, and 
I think that the structure really works into that. It has these like big leaps forward in time, like you say. And, you know, it's been a while since I've seen a film do that in a way that I've, I've bitten into. Like, I think that, you know, these time skips actually feel quite justified, but by constantly shuffling the kind of like people around her or the clothes she wears, you know, she shows up at one point and she's like now part of the soul art underground and then she's like this high powered sort of business person. It's um, sort of still discovering new ways to depict her more of it like as an outsider. So she stabilizes. She be- Like you say, she learns the language and we can see her progressively become more translatable to Korean culture. But the drama doesn't stop there. There's some things that just translation doesn't do, some problems that aren't just down to cultural barriers. So like you said, Peter, it's like very sort of unspoken in a way where we're left it, it, we're left with this sort of like very vague impression as to what the problem is or what needs to be done to address it. And that's, I think, what makes this film sort of really stick with you, sort of run around in your head after you've watched it yeah well i mean it all centers on jimin park's performance and she's excellent because she plays it really well in a way you never get a sense the character's comfortable in what they're doing and they're always looking for the next thing to do but that they're always a fish out of water no matter what pond they end up in as a kind of like because by the end we've got a french speaking kind of francophile korean presenting korean born woman working in the arms industry so it's one of these like nested fish out of water things and like like we were talking about when she's like disrupting their kind of traditions in the bar or where she's not really playing along at like family dinners and stuff so much of that is signifying things that are going on internally and psychologically but like you say you can't just look at somebody you wouldn't think you could just look at somebody being confused for an hour and three quarters but this film gets pretty close to making that uh, I, you know, it's a really, really good film with a really, really good central performance but about a character who doesn't know what they want. They just know that what they currently have isn't it. But they also don't, they also know that they don't know what it is that they do want. Which sounds, and it is really, that is a kind of really dark and kind of an emotional journey this girl goes on. But like, it's also really funny, and I agree. The language barrier is is funny because there's also she has kind of a couple, a few translators throughout the film. So there's like this friend who speaks very fluent French actually, and and she chooses not to. She's just a bit more polite than Freddie because Fre- Freddie's incredibly blunt, and she'll just say, "I don't want to see you anymore." And, you know, she's like, and 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 this uh, translator has to let the family down gently. Um, but then there's also uh, funny moments where she's using her auntie to do the translating. So her auntie claims to be great at French, but actually isn't very good at all. So there's this kind of like weird um, moment where she has to like translate both Korean into French, but then um, Korean back to, to, in French, and she just gets it all wrong. And again, it's just like a, a miscommunication. And maybe if that some of those conversations had more smooth translation, it would, things would work out. So it's just like full of like little ironies like that. Um, there's also an amazing scene later in the film, um, and I think maybe my favourite moment in the film, where um, Freddie, she's she's now sort of reinvent herself, like you say, as an arms dealer, but she's got this kind of gauche boyfriend with her who sort of talks a bit too much and sort of tries to explain why she's doing it, and he explains that she's doing it because she wants to like fight for South Korea against North Korea and things like that. Um, so again, she's turned off by her boyfriend, but then then something happens where her father plays this little piece of music, this little simple thing that he's made, um, and she's clearly so moved by it, um, but she it's she doesn't say a word, and it's just like again, it's like just 
brilliant acting. It's, it's her all in her face. So it's how this... She's never understood her father because the, because of the language barrier, but then he does something that that transcends language and, and she suddenly changes her whole opinion about him. And again, she goes off on another tangent about changing the light. I think that what sort of will make this film popular with so many different people is, like you said, you kind of have to... You're left to really interpret it just based on her kind of facial performance because not only do people just not really talk a lot about what they're feeling or what they're going through but we're repeated time and t- it's repeated time and time again that um language is uh, unreliable that everyone's sort of mistranslating or putting their own thing on things and even then watching it as someone who speaks neither french nor korean it's been further translated for our captions so it must be a completely different experience to be able to perceive the word choice and tone if you actually are a speaker of French or Korean. Um, unfortunately, I'm a, I'm a monoglot. <laughs> but, um, but still, like, you're encouraged to really kind of try and analyse what's going on in any scene, but there's sort of obstacles. The characters all seem to, you know, not fully gel with each other or want different things out of it, or sometimes they're not good at translating. So it really is... Yeah, very internal in that, and I think that loads of people will then see a bit of themselves in in that, in in the inability to just clearly express things or find out what they want to say. Yes, I would say it's a film for anyone who has ever thought, oh, I'm not sure about this, I don't want this, but I don't know what it is I do want. Oh no, I've done it again. (laughs) There's also another thing about language I thought was really funny, and probably the funniest part of the film is when Freddie finds out from the adoption agency what her original name was. And I think it was something like um, uh, Yo Hen or Yo He mm-hmm. is her Korean name, um, and it turns out that means docile and joyous, yeah. which is like hilarious because <laughs> she's the least docile, joyous person in the world. So it's just like again, it's like it's got full of those little um, grace notes, like the little ironies. So it's a film like that where actually not a lot happens in it, not to spoil too much, but from Freddie at the beginning to Freddie at the end, because she goes through all these tr- transformations, it's it's hard to judge how much she's changed how much her arc has changed in the film. And even then, the ending doesn't have a kind of clear um, resolution. But what I like about the film is all these little moments in between. So all these moments that uh, I kind of recognise, you know, like from life, where, yeah, like you say, it's it's all about the kind of um, the interpretation of language or, you know, just the feeling of that something isn't quite right, you know? So like, so, so it, it's, a, it's a subtle film in a way. Um, and it's a film that uh, has got a kind of a real kind of richness to it. So Return to Seoul is out this Friday via Mubi. It's out in UK cinemas and it'll be on Mubi shortly after that. So if you like not being sure about things, check it out. Three thumbs up from us. Okay, so the May issue of The Skinny is all about pop. It says so on the cover. So to mark that, Jamie asked all the film writers to choose their favourite kind of like blockbuster genre films from the 21st century that are also good. So not kind of like brainless, unambitious slop. Mainstream films that are pushing the envelope, doing things inventively with the filmmaking and pushing like thought-provoking ideas alongside thrills and spills and jeopardies and things of this nature. So to complement this, we thought that we would also talk about some films of this nature. So we've each gone away and it turns out we've actually each picked a kind of franchise, if you will, a series of films. Franchises are bad, Lewis. The films that they make are poor and they are incredibly cynical and only made for the profit of the capitalists. What's your response to that? Well, 
So in terms of talking about like, uh, <laughs> in terms of talking about like pop cinema, it mostly but not always refers to genre cinema, right? So you know a genre conventions that have already been laid down, and you work within that space, but you have enough wiggle room to do something imaginative. And I think that like a slight exception to this is the Pirates of the Caribbean films, because um, the most common complaint that mainstream audiences levy against Hollywood is the lack of originality, right? People want less remakes, reboots, sequels, prequels, squeakquels, etc. Whereas Pirates of the Caribbean is an adaptation of a Disney ride, and it's not, you know, unoriginal. Um, like, 18th century pirate fantasy is a genre that does not often get captured on film, and definitely never with, like, such a big budget. And some of the special effects have aged quite poorly. The sequel's characters with Bill Nye as Davy Jones and the Kraken, they still look amazing. Um... And not to mention they're, they're very dark as well. But it's not just that, like, Disney, of all companies, has invested heavily in this uncommon genre. It's that the films themselves have, like, lots to love about them, at least in the earlier installments. The plots are really weird and more complex than you remember. Like, Orlando Bloom and Kira Knightley have this unspoken affection towards each other, but the very real restrictions of the historical setting, like the, you know, uh, 18th century caste system or keeping them apart... And Jack Sparrow, by clever happenstance, sort of collides with both of them and sweeps them along in the plot whilst trying to fulfill his own selfish interests. Um, like, and then, the you know, it's, it's prudent to remember that the first action scene you really get in Pirates of the Caribbean is a sword fight between two of our main protagonists in this black sh- blacksmith shop where all the different equipment factors in, there's wheels turning, there's fires, sparks. The sequence really uses uh, the setting in an interesting way. And, yeah, it, it re- also reveals a lot about our characters and their personal interests and goals while still building a chemistry that suggests they're going to be on the same side eventually. So these bespoke character developments and elaborate fight scenes, they come to a head at the end of the second film where everyone knows this. It's like it was iconic at the time and it still is. You have three characters fighting a three-way sword duel on top of and also within a runaway water wheel for a key that keeps getting passed between them to a chest that's also being juggled around. They all have their separate motivations. They all switch allegiances. The plot of the second one is not incoherent, but it's very complicated and ambitious, but it's still delighted audiences because of these really immense elaborate sequences. And it's like, you know, are these fight scenes gimmicks? I guess technically, but the fact that there's choreography and special effects to back it up means that it's just action done in a way more multi-dimensional way than you'd be expecting in a story that is set in a pretty unexplored genre that utilizes its setting, utilizes its characters, and has a really wide-ranging appeal because it is fun but also quite dark and intense. So Pirates of the Caribbean, at least the first three films, that's my parenthesis, thumbs up. So you're, you're a Gore Verbinski stan. I'm not a Gore Verbinski stan. Like, I, I, what else has he done, really? I mean, like... He did, like, um, The Lone Ranger. I didn't see uh, that. Which was, like... Well, there's lots of people who love that film. Um, I think he did... I want to see Rango? Is the... Oh, yeah. I mean, it would make sense considering yeah. he continually worked with Johnny Depp. Yeah. But that's the thing. In the Gore Verbinski Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, Johnny Depp, at least for a while, is, like squarely a secondary character our protagonists are orlando bloom and kira knightley and you know johnny depp doesn't steal the show he just provides this sort of like intense um colorful performance a lot of the humor and a lot of the weird mystic supernatural stuff going on um he's a plot device 
as much as a character. Uh, so it, it seems a little less like other Gore Verbinski's where he's heavily collaborating with Johnny Depp as a leading man. Um, but at least those first three ones are quite good. Then they kind of fall apart because they lose our main characters and then Jack Sparrow has to be like, it's the Jack Sparrow show. But again, the first three films, they are surprisingly complex in terms of their plotting and the setting is not underutilized. Nice. You mentioned something about the environment being used in an action scene. Now, in the film that Jamie, in the series that Jamie wants to talk about, the environment is used as an antagonist, the chief antagonist of the film. Yes. There so, you go. Yeah, so, so, my, so I, I went for a franchise as well. I think the best franchise of the 21st century. Berlin, Lord of the Rings, Berlin MCU, and that is the Final Destination franchise. I think what's great about them is they're just, the setup is ingenious. I think it's like, if you're, if you're doing like the whole elevator pitch, you know, you, you fit the, the idea on the back of a postage stamp. It's like, a, it, you start with a horrible disaster happening. And the disaster is like incredibly gory and inventive. So so straight off, the first like 20 minutes is excellent. Really fun. But then it turns out what you've seen is just somebody's premonition and it reverses back and this person stops, well, excuses themselves from the violence bit and, and along the way kind of brings along a few bystanders uh, and that's how the film sets up. But, but the idea is that the Grim Reaper is not happy that it didn't get a kill of these people. So the rest of the film is just the Grim Reaper trying to have his, his revenge, or her revenge, I don't, I don't want to like be sexist there. <laughs> the death could be a lady, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, um, it, so, so these people are going to die, and we know they're going to die. And what's the fun about the, the, the films are, how are they going to die? So every time they do anything, you know, they turn on the bathtub, they go for a haircut, they go to the dentist, they go to the have laser eye surgery. We know something's gonna bad's gonna happen, and we just have to watch how it's gonna happen. So that's what for me is the most enjoyable thing about the the, the the franchise. Every film is exactly the same. That is exactly the same setup. Um, a bunch of good-looking people just avoid an accident, whether it's a plane crash, a, a you know a pile up on a motorway, a roller coaster, whatever it is, they avoid that, and then we're just gonna see how they're gonna die. And that is as simple as it can be. But the joy and why they're so fun to rewatch is just the vervara of the filmmaking, like how elaborate the setup is. It's almost like a, you know you know the game Mousetrap, like where one sequence of events leads to another. Uh, that's what I love about it. It's like um, a dripping onto a onto a plug causes a chain reaction, which is going to kill this person. And it's gory. It's funny. Um, the people are, are unlikable anyway, so it doesn't really matter if you know you never feel any sort of sympathy for them. They're all horrible, <laughs> but uh, so it's, so there's like a real kind of grimness to it. But it's also quite profound. It's like it's, it's the idea that you cannot escape death. You know, it's actually quite existential in its in its idea. Um, and as much as everyone tries, no one actually escapes. So it's it's also um, it doesn't cheat. Like I feel like sort of films like this would usually cop out and sort of let people get off with it. Um, but each film never pulls a punch, you know? They might survive for one film, but then in the next film, you know, uh, I'm thinking around and saying no one has cheated death yet. So that's what I love about it. It's uh, it's just sort of a grim, gnarly idea performed beautifully uh, in terms of the filmmaking and, and, and it's just executed the same way each time and they don't break the formula. And one thing that, if I'm remembering correctly, that the Final Destination films do well is in the kind of like, 
after Scream, every film of this type has at least one character who's like, I know that we are in a constructed reality so I can break the rules of it. And this film doesn't let them, do it lets them know that like, oh, we've uh, dodged the Grim Reaper's mighty sword, but it doesn't let them, that doesn't then mean they're gonna get away. If anything, that's worse. Cause you're like, oh, we were supposed to be in that plane crash. Ah, well, good to see that didn't happen. That bus is coming down the street awfully quickly. <laughs> Yeah, like that, that's that's what I love about it. It's like um, it's kind of merciless, you know. Yeah. So yeah, um, everyone is constantly at risk of taking incredibly high levels of environmental damage. <laughs> it's like a Super Smash Brothers stage, yeah. but where every bit of the floor is like on fire or will yeah. shoot you into the sun. Super Smash Brothers meets Saw meets a Rube Goldberg machine. Yes, with a bit of like sort of Looney Tunes thrown in of good measure because the, like these the deaths are ridiculous. But it's also kind of uh, the deaths are usually using household objects. I am kind of scared of household objects. I think partly this is why I enjoy watching this because I hate doing any DIY because I'm very clumsy and I do usually injure myself. Um, I'm terrified of falling over in the bath, for example. Um, I'm sure I'm going to break my neck and die one day. I I don't ever want to live alone because I think I would just like be a rotten corpse after a few weeks. So the, so the film is like full of like things like that that you will recognize from like everyday life, you know, like, because the deaths are never like too, they're elaborate, but they're never like, it's, it's always like household objects that do it, you know? It's like always DIY stuff or gym equipment or, you know, like going, like I say, going to get a sunbed. It's always kind of normal everyday things that do it. But they always kill them in unusual ways because they never get trapped under a barrage of pots and pans. It'll be like that a pot falls, but then that hits the bin lid and then the bin lid throws a knife in there and the knife hits the chandelier and that's what crushes you. Yeah, as opposed to other horror writers where people, I suppose, like the writer room has to all sit down and embrace their inner misanthropy or something like that. The writer room for uh, Final Destination must just sit down and like embrace their anxiety <laughs> in the most elaborate ways. Just like whenever you see a pin that's facing upwards or a plug someone's going to stand on and be like, oh, how would this be a million times worse? And it's not just the thing, yeah, it's not just the thing of someone getting hit by a taxi. It's that the taxi has to splash a puddle which then catches on an electrical substation which then knocks a tree over and then the tree falls into a path of a different taxi and that's the one that... But, but this is where the humour comes from because like like you say, the, the, like you always think they've almost arrived. So it's like they, they avoid the taxi and then something else comes. But then the, ta- then the engine from the taxi suddenly bursts out from the back and cuts their brain into it. You know, like that's, that's what's great about it. It's, 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 sort of, it's just like... It is like a, uh, you know, a Looney Tunes film. It is like Wally Coyote stuff, yeah. you know, it's like, uh, that's, that's what I like about it. Speaking of driving things, so I was torn between two bits of the Statham verse. Whether we were going to talk about Crank or talk about the Transporter. The thing about Crank is that it's like, it's quite interesting, but it's also a tiny wee bit completely shoddy and kind of horrible. Whereas the Transporter is basically the film which pootled around at 20 miles an hour so that drive could drive faster. I'm not sure about the metaphor, but Jason Statham is in the south of France driving a Beamer and kicking the shit out of folk. And he has three rules, which is that uh, when he is doing transporting things for you as the transporter, what are they? It's that you don't change the deal, you don't do something else, but you don't look in the package, right? You never look in the package. And Jason Statham's like, I never look in the package. And then in this film, guess what he looks in, Lewis? He looks in the package and the package is a person. And this is bad. He doesn't want to be driving a person around the south of France in the Beamer that's going to get in the way when he's trying to fight people. So it's 
a double directing credit for it's Corey Yun, who's like a Hong Kong action director, and Louis Leterrier, who is like kind of Luc Besson's pal or some relation, uh, and is the director of the new Fast and Furious film that's coming out, Fast 10. Uh, and Luc Besson wrote the script. So it's kind of like a cross between a Hong Kong action film and like a, one of those French, like wild, weird, somehow mainstream, like kind of taxi fifth element type situation. So it's very weird and kind of like European and Hong Kong inspired at the same time. The thing about it is it's not very well equipped to deal with the central motivating issue, which is industrial scale people trafficking. It's like, this comes up quite late on and you're like, ooh, I'm not sure, ooh, that kind of removes some of the knockabout fun from this. But it does have a lot of Jason Statham doing good Jason Statham voice. And he fights a bunch of lads covered in oil, topless in a warehouse with bicycle pedals attached to his feet. And he slides around, as I saw someone write, like a seal, <laughs> uh, just kicking people for about 10 minutes. Where does the oil come from? Uh, the warehouse. It's an oil factory, an oil warehouse. He's in the oil warehouse. <laughs> He's in the discount oil warehouse somewhere <laughs> just off the French Riviera. I think what happens is he spills the oil and then he gets these like uh, clip-on, clip-off like bicycle pedals and then skids around and it's just like hoofing folk. Um, it does have some very good uh, drivey vroom vrooms uh, in the second, I can't remember if it's the second or the third one, but there's a scene where there's a bomb attached to the bottom of his car so he drives over a ramp, flips the car and detaches the bomb using a crane. That's how you transport. Um, some good punching, some good kicking. Jason Statham, I was, so I watched a lot of these, because this came out in like 2002, I think. So I must've been like 14, 15, something like that. I remember watching a lot of these Jason Statham films and thinking Jason Statham, bless his heart, is a solid man, but not much of an actor. But actually, the, the, it's one of these things like, as things get reappraised, like the whole point of Jason Statham is to look hard, be gruff and kick men. And you can't argue that in The Transporter and in Crank and in some of the other things that he's been in, he does that. In that Guy Ritchie one, Revolver, where he didn't kick enough men. No good, no bueno. We need him to be hoofing boys, being gruff and just standing about. I think my favorite um, Jason Statham performance is actually a comedy one though. Have you seen Spy? Someone was telling me about Spy at the weekend, actually. Is this the one with Melissa McCarthy? Melissa McCarthy. So he plays, like, uh, another spy who's uh, part of uh, the same organisation, Melissa McCarthy's. And, but, but what is... He's, he's, like, basically just a braggart, and he will insist that he, he kills people in the most ridiculous way. And he's just, like... The, yeah, he's a very ridiculous bad spy, but uh, he's, he's, he's got a good sense of humour. Like, I think he, he realises that he's quite a ridiculous character. Like, he's... He's found a kind of groove to make these daft films like Crank and like Expendables and things like that. Um, but yeah, he's got quite a good sense of humour about it. In the way that maybe somebody like Slice Lone wouldn't have a good sense of humour about it, you know, or or somebody even like Steven Seagal has no sense of humour about his uh, persona. Whereas I think uh, Jason Statham, yeah, he knows he's, he's ridiculous and he knows he's good at being ridiculous. You'll get oiled up. Exactly. You do whatever you want with Jason well, His career arc is that he went from being a Commonwealth Games level diving board diver to a man whose job is now to pretend to kick people in the head. With that kind of arc, you've got to have a good sense of humour. And I'm just going to challenge Tom Daly to get on it. This, yeah. could, this could be... I'm going to challenge Tom Daly. <laughs> Tom Daly is going to be the protagonist of the next guy. Yeah. I've decided I'm going to call out on this podcast, Tom Daly. I, I, I want a, uh, like a kind of like Tango and Cash style uh, Jason Statham 
Tom Daly out on the road kicking ass. How's that? <laughs> when you said Tango and Cash, I thought you meant Turner and H. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering which, No, you could do like an Expendables thing where you just get all like former athletes. You get Chris Hoy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Call it the running man. Very good. <laughs> there we go. I don't know. Do any of them run? <laughs> I mean, you have to run a little bit. Sure. And so, what is cycling if not running with wheels? I feel like this bit might be nearly done. So. <laughs> we are now. Or, be, or, or getting yeah. cut. So all of this is to say that in the new issue of The Skinny, which is out this week, there is a big two pages, is it, in the end? Was it two or three? Two, uh, two pages. Two, two pages. pages of a bunch of pics from film writers, some of whom have been on the pod, some of whom have written for us for a while, each picking out their favourite kind of like excellent, artful blockbusters. And that'll be on the website shortly as well. So go and check that out. It's very good. Watch The Transporter. Watch Pirates of the Caribbean. Watch Final Destination look both ways before you cross the street. That is not a threat. That... <laughs> we've got previews, well not previews, we've got screenings of Matinee, the Joe Dante, John Goodman, Cuban Missile Crisis horror roadshow film at the CCA on Wednesday the 10th of May and Summerhall on Thursday the 11th of May. Get your tickets at theskinny.co.uk slash tickets. Now, we didn't want to talk about the film, because everyone's going to go and see it. And if they listen to this, and we tell them all the things that are in it, it will spoil the film. So instead, I want to talk about Mant, which is the film within a film, which is uh, on the Blu-ray release and is also on YouTube. So I thought we'd talk about that as a way into the film. I will give you a brief synopsis of Mant now. Bill is a shoe salesman, he goes to the dentist, an ant gets in the x-ray machine, he becomes a mant, he then goes electric, like Bob Dylan, he gets very, very big, uh, he goes on a rampage, and so on and so forth. Uh, Jamie, just before we go full mant to end the episode, if people were on the fence about going to see Matinee, what would you say to them in response? Well, I'd say it's made by, I think, one of the most underrated American filmmakers in Joe Dante who from the very start of his career has been sort of great at parody. So his very first film um, was called Piranha, which came out, I think, two years after Jaws, and it was just essentially a Jaws rip-off. Um, and he's made films like The Howling and Gremlins, which are all, all kind of satirical elements. So he's a, he's a filmmaker who is who makes super popular films, but he always kind of crowbars in quite interesting ideas. And one of his uh, continuing themes actually is been anti-military. So films like Small Soldiers, for example, which seemed at the time like a Toy Story ripoff, um, was actually a really smart um, look at American foreign, foreign policy and how like um, the othering of other nations. Um, uh, he's, he's done things like um, Inner Space, which is another kind of uh, send up of kind of uh, the military establishment. Uh, he's made a really grim film. Um, called Homecoming, which imagines sort of Iraq soldiers coming back from the war as zombies. So it's something that's kind of played out throughout his career. And I think you'll actually see a lot of it in Matinee. So it's set during the Cuban, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. It's at the kind of height of, um, you know, the red under the bed sort of paranoia. Literal fear because uh, World War Three was imminent. And he grew up during this, but also at the same time he was watching films like um, them, the kind of big ants turned into like monsters or the tarantula film that's, that's you know, these kind of, uh, these atomic fear films 
Um, so he clearly loves him, and I think in Matinee, and particularly Mant, he has uh, made a beautiful parody of him. Yeah, because I think the thing about the Mant parody, like the Mant film inside Matinee, is that it does a really good send up of those kind of exposition heavy B movies, but also of like the social stuff that's always always goes around them. Like the script of Mant is hilarious. There's this scientist character who comes in and just Mant explains everything. Like, and he talks to the way that he talks to Bill's wife, the most over the top bit of talking down to someone you've ever heard. He'll say things like, oh, the thing about him is because of the nuclear he's touched, he's going to grow at an accelerated or speed it up, right. Um, Did you notice that when the ceiling collapses in, he protects her by taking his hat off and putting it on her? <laughs> like, the whole thing is just, like, a great big 15-minute comedy sketch that's sort of celebrating this, this like, you know, this sort of schlocky hammer horror. That's, like, a very antiquated genre, but that just means that it's very well rehearsed, so it's easy to play about with. It's the most Garth Marenghi's Dark Place yeah. thing that I've seen in a while. The scene where, like, right at the start, they just cut, like in media res to, oh, what's happened to my husband? Oh, he got done by a nuclear ant, and now he is Mant. And then the dentist pulls down a pool chart print that just has the brain written on the top of it, and then just a side-on picture of a human head. And then he pulls out a pointer, why would you have that in a dentist's office? And just says like, ah, oh, as you can see, yeah, the, the, the nuclear went in here, and that made his, that made his head go all manty. The kicker to that scene is the good news is he's no cavities. His, his dentist appointment was a success, <laughs> apart from being transformed into an ant. And the, the great thing about that is that he delivers that at the end of the scene. So he waits the whole way through of this guy's existential, like, calf, literally Kafka-esque concern about his transformation. And then he says, well, if you want the good news, I've got your x-rays right here and your teeth are looking great. It is very Kafka-esque as well in the fact that even the guy doesn't seem that bothered at first. They're all, oh, what are we going to do? Like, it's there's something very mundane about it. The delivery is immense. Yeah. And then it becomes, I don't know, a lot of fun. Kind of like you've got your shrieking dames and stuff like yeah. that. And then it does get, you know, the special effects are quite good. It's not un-Cronenbergian. The, the commitment to the bit... I think is one of the best things about like when you do this kind of work you have to really commit to it and the man costume is impressively gross it's all knobbly and hairy and damp uh, but then they also do a really funny bit where like you would think in this kind of thing you would dub the dialogue of the guy wearing the giant ant head but the fact that Bill's dialogue is not ADR and he's just muffled by this enormous like foam headpiece he's like <laughs> but um, as funny as that is, isn't it it's actually I think surprisingly for just clips from the film it actually plays like actually quite a good short film but what I was going to say is what surprised me looking back at it is actually how much even this daft parody is trying to say something about the world. So so there is a scene where the scientist and the he gives a speech to the kind of military guys saying, why do you want to kill Bill? He's just an ant. He's just trying to live his life. Why do we have to bombard him with, with weapons? Why? Because he's different. Do we have to murder him? And we actually don't see Bill killing people. You know, it's like, he's just an ant. Uh, you know, he does bite the dentist, but that's another, <laughs> another, another. You know, I think, I think, yeah, I think he, I think he deserved it to be honest. But, but you know, like so, so even though it's daft, this is what this is what Joe Dante does throughout all his films. Even though he does basically a, a silly comedy, he also tries to say something smart within it. And I think that's his real kind of gift as a filmmaker. He can be funny 
but also profound at the same time. And I think that's, uh, yeah, that's why I would recommend Mant, but I would also recommend Matinee as well. Expertly done. So yeah, CCA in Glasgow next Wednesday the 10th, Summer Hall in Edinburgh on the 11th. I'll be there. Will you? Points out audience. Uh, you can get your tickets at the skinny.co.uk slash tickets. And that's about everything for today. So thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you. Uh, this, uh, hopefully this has sounded all right because we are in the meeting room, but we will be in a proper studio in two weeks' time when we're back. Anaheat will also be back from our holiday. So that'll be good. Get the whole gang back together. Lovely times. So uh, in the meantime, you can get us on email at cineskinny at theskinny.co.uk. You can get us all on Twitter. All of our info's in the show notes. And we will be back in two weeks' time with more film things. Hopefully see some of you at matinee. Good evening. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.